everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with business executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is our monthly friend, Tony Uphoff, CEO of Thomas, which is the parent firm of ThomasNet, a data platform that connects buyers and sellers from around the world in industrial markets. It has a massive store of data on what's happening in those markets. Tony, welcome back to Cloud Wars Live. Always great to see you. Hey, Bob. Always great to be on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, everybody, Tony, as you know, is uh, expertise here. We call him Uphoff on industry. And Tony brings to his background a mix of things from the world of media, data. He's done his own digital transformation at Thomas and a close study with manufacturing and industrial companies all over the world. Very, very interesting perspectives here. And Tony, it looked like you had three interrelated ideas that you wanted to dig into a little bit today. Tell us, you know, what you're thinking and how those sort of stack up. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Bob, and, and you and I have the benefit of, 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 as I've said before, having had a ringside seat at a lot of these market transitions. And, you know, the old cliche of, you know, it, it always surprises you how long it takes for them to happen and then the speed with which they ultimately happen. And I think we're at one of those stages right now, whether you want to call this in our part of the market, Industry 4.0, digital transformation, there's just so much vibrancy right now. There's kind of three things we see going on that we just think are really interesting. The first is the, the human element of the people side of this. When technology starts to go through a step change, as you well know, what starts to happen is the same titles, could be CEO, could be um, chief technology officer. The titles don't change, but what starts to change is how those titles manifest themselves into the work and the skill sets that we need from those types of roles. And, and we believe we're starting to see one of those shifts right now. We can see it in our part of the market. I believe I'm seeing it more broadly. Connected to this, a little closer to home for Thomas, is we're seeing the redefinition of what manufacturing is, where, you know, simply put, Bob, it's the convergence of all this, you know, astounding technology with traditional manufacturing. And as a result, I think as an industry, we're struggling a little bit to explain who we are and, and how we fit in. And those are interesting because those are markets and moments of opportunity. And then the, the last piece is really kind of a third leg to the stool, if that makes sense, of a lot of technology providers and a role within most of those companies that's been coined over the last free few years is this idea of a customer success team. The idea, and we have one here at Thomas, Bob, where the goal, the objective, is that if you're a customer of ours, we work with you pre, but mostly post-sale, to help make sure that you're getting the value out of the product and service. And, we think we're starting to watch both good and bad, some redefinition of what's going on with customer success. And so those three things are kind of on our mind and I thought might be interesting uh, and fruitful for a discussion. Tony, absolutely. Uh, it'd be intrigued to see that, how you sort of roll that out from the CTO to manufacturing overall and customer success. And as you were describing that and sort of this new face and new meaning of what manufacturing is. You know, I, I live in Pittsburgh here, and I think it was uh, just over 100 years ago that the author H.L. Mencken referred to Pittsburgh, the industrial <laughs> town, as hell with the lid torn off. And uh, <laughs> the notion today of manufacturing is so interesting and so exciting. I think I saw something 
on your on the Thomas Daily Newsletter not long ago. I talked about the company that made a wire that was fine enough to help uh, the, in the birth and ongoing survival of, I think it was the smallest infant ever born and, and survived, uh, less than a pound. So the range of, you know, what's happening here, it's not that idea of, you know, giant things being shoved in one end of a manufacturing plant, beat up, heated, steamed, and shoved out the other side in some big thing. This is, this is life-changing stuff that, uh, that Thomas is in the thick of. Yeah, it's interesting, Bob. If you look at it, you know, the, the, there's, in my opinion, and I want to be clear, that what I'm about to say is more opinion than it is based on data. I think manufacturing has been something that's been misunderstood for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, if I was, was coming to your town, if I was coming to Pittsburgh and I was running for political office, and I was to say to you two things, jobs have left Pittsburgh and I can bring them back, or crime is up in Pittsburgh and I can take care of that, I'd likely get your attention. Now, most people don't actually track those statistics. So it's easy to get people's heads wrapped around this. So I think manufacturing has been used as a bit of a political football. So I think that's a, I think that's a bit of a, of a, of a piece of it, if, if that makes sense. I think the other aspect about it has to do with the public markets. So if you look at valuations, if I'm valued as a tech company, I have a much higher valuation than if I'm valued as a quote unquote manufacturing company. So arguably the top four most valuable companies in the world, all manufacturing something, all manufacture things to a greater or lesser degree, right? But yet they're all valued and refer to themselves as tech companies. And so I, I think you look at Tesla, second most valuable company in the auto industry to Toyota with what, one fourth, one fifth, the output of Toyota. Now they're valued more like a tech company. Now they're bending steel, just like the other manufacturers. Now the way they go about that is they've clearly fused tech at the center of that. And, and I would argue redefining the auto industry. But I, I think it's a fascinating time in that industry in that there's a, there's a, in a $2.4 trillion market in the US alone, I think there's still, I don't know what the right word I'm looking for, Bob, but almost this schizophrenia, if not insecurity about standing up and being the industry that we are. And I think that's a little bit of a perhaps evolutionary thing, not, not revolutionary, but it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating dynamic to watch this start to play out and realize we're, we're watching, I would argue, maybe the, the convergence of a couple of these industries creating this new advanced manufacturing industry that you and I are describing. Tony, you've talked before about how some of these large-scale industrial processes are doing things like uh, improving dramatically the yield of what businesses in food processing do. Um, there's a company in Switzerland we talked to recently called Buhler, and they, they have their hand in the, the equipment that processes a, a huge amount of the global uh, food output. And one of the things that they've done is added in some R. So, uh, sorry, added in some AI technology that allows them as they're going through corn production and wheat and rice to identify the tiny little grains of food that would have a microscopic organism on it that could be helpful. And instead of having to throw out a whole, you know, massive load of food like that, they're able to isolate individual things. They get a puff of air as it goes through the chute and it's gone. Right. This is 2020 manufacturing, right? And industrial technology. And it's going to be harder and harder to separate 
what is the manufacturing part of that and what is the tech part of that or the software, the AI and the ML. What an exciting time for you guys. We, we covered a, 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 an emerging area that it would be very similar kind of future look, Bob, around those types of issues, which is there are companies that are emulating sunflowers. And as you know from nature, a sunflower literally moves based on the angle of the sun. And it's really one of the most remarkable things in nature. There is a company that has created what they call a sunbot, and it is emulating nature. And so it's creating a solar technology that will be for what they claim 400% more efficient than current solar technology, because in essence, it's adapting, right, to where the, the blaze of the sun is or isn't. And I, I just think there's so many of these types of of things that are happening that are really, really unique. So my, my kind of meta point on this is, I think it's always um, exciting because there's moments of opportunity and moments of, of crazy change in markets that are going through these redefining moments. And you know, I don't, I'm not using redefining like, oh, it's getting ground down or it's going through financial turmoil. I mean redefining that, that we, we're struggling to find the right terms to talk about all the component pieces that fit into an industry like this today. Those are great things and, and I think very exciting things. Put aside whether we need to redefine it, put aside whether we need to think of it as something different than just you know, quote unquote manufacturing. There are implications that go back to the human element we were talking about. There are implications in that the legacy perspective does start to create and exacerbate some of the skills shortage that the industry sees. There's a tremendous number of, of jobs, many of them new, we're reshoring, we're doing all kinds of things. But if you, ha uh, you, know, you, have, you have daughters, I have a daughter as well, um, they're, they're post-graduation and in the workforce today, but if my daughter was in high school or college and really enjoyed making things, I'd struggle with what I know about manufacturing, I'd probably encourage her to go into what would be a fantastic career. Had I not been as close to it as I am though, based on the perception, you know what I mean? I might kind of say, oh gosh, you know what? You might want to look at something different. And I think, you know, maybe just nature takes its course. And, and this is, you know, as I said before, an evolution over time. But I think it's one of those issues that's a, that's a positive, but there are implications that if we can't help this along, and I'm not trying to dress something up and pretend it's something it's not, but if we can't articulate it for what it is, I think it holds um, a, a natural gating factor, where if young people aren't coming out of you know, junior high, high school, and into apprenticeships and programs and college programs or junior college programs that would provide the, the great you know, career opportunities, that's a bit of a challenge for the industry. Yeah, and so Tony, inside some of these industrial and manufacturing companies, it's interesting, you believe that in some ways, the sort of a focal point of a lot of this change and redefinition is coming through an executive paradoxically with the title chief technology officer. So what's going on there? Well, you would, you know, frankly, be one of the, the classic historians, if I can use that term, Bob, watching the real birth and scale of business technology as we know it today in the 21st century. I mean, you were there early in a lot of these things and chronicled that as a journalist. I believe we're seeing a similar dynamic here where um, 
advanced technology on the shop floor, if I can use that, is not new. That's been around for many, many years, and companies, to a greater or lesser degree, continue to adopt that technology. And it's what's allowed US manufacturing or North American manufacturing in particular to become competitive on the global stage. So a chief operating officer or an MRO or other titles that would be primarily responsible for that type of technology, those roles aren't new. But what's starting to happen now is with digital transformation and perhaps the digital transformation of your supply chain, the digital transformation of your sales and marketing, what we're starting to see is the need for some of these executives to take a more holistic view and a more holistic view of how the whole business and the whole ecosystem operates. And, and I think, Bob, it's similar to what you and I watched happen in business technology where, you know, back then they called it ISIT, right? And you and I were around at the beginning where suddenly what was happening is these people were coming out of a back office and they were starting to come into the boardroom. They were starting to talk about revenues. They were starting to talk about, you know, efficiency and not just from a, oh, I'm going to save some money with the next set of computers we buy, but really how technology could be a game changer in terms of the business, um, the, the actual business outcome for the company. And boy, I'm, I'm encapsulating probably 25 years of, of uh, drama that, that got to that point. We think we're seeing the same thing starting to happen now in these industrial and manufacturing marketplaces where these, these, um, these chief technical roles are now, um, in, and I think as a positive forcing function, having to take a broader business point of view, having just an understanding of how to automate the factory floor is not enough unless you also understand how the ERP, uh, ERP system fits into your supply chain, how to understand in real time how the supply chain's working, how to understand the implications of the data you might be capturing, how to understand, as our friend Sean Amarati says, post-digital transformation, perhaps business model transformation. If you don't have a technical executive that can hang in that, and I would argue even pace that conversation, I think increasingly that's gonna be a competitive disadvantage. Tony, great stuff there. And I, I think of so almost as a bridge to the, the third element you wanted to talk about there related toward, you know, what does customer success mean in some of these environments? It seems that there is also a growing place for, you know, this idealized CTO today to do all the things you're talking about, but also say to the CEO, to the board, and be a chief spokesperson out with customers and saying, what is the appropriate way for us to pull our customers into product design, yeah. product feedback, service creation, new ways of doing things, new ways of sharing IP? It's, it is just sort of a boundless opportunity here. But speaking to the notion of change that you've described, if you'd go back three or five or seven years ago, a lot of, and raise this idea, a lot of people would say, you know, you're nuts. This is, this is an internal thing. Don't overcomplicate it. But the world is, uh, is forcing us to think in very different ways today. Yeah, I think you're right, Bob. And I think I, I, I spend or attempt to spend some time trying to understand, so what's different now? What are we seeing that's different this time? We've seen these cycles in technology, not exactly the same, but I think the implications of what you're describing, right? A, a senior executive that's starting to lead this level of, of technology change. I think the difference is really data. And I think what's starting to happen here 
is if I go back in previous cycles, the idea of data was a, a trailing instrument of some sort that trailed results and customer feedback. Maybe it was a 90-day survey of customers, and it really wasn't something that was real-time. The implications of real-time data today, in my opinion, are starting to change this. And I, I'll use Thomas as a good example. As we've built the company from a, you know, a, a traditional print directory many years ago, went online in the mid-90s, online only in, in 2005, the real accelerator today is our chief technology officer um, through new and more advanced technology started to stream real-time data. So whether that was with our users, um, feedback from our, our advertising customers, and stream that real-time data, two things started to happen. We started to monitor things we'd never monitored. And, you know, because if something's a trailing indicator, as much as a senior executive, I'd love to say, oh, I read every one of those reports. If it's 90 days after the fact, I'll be candid, and I don't think I'm that different. I, I'm gonna read it, but, you know, what, what possibly could I do 90 days after the fact? The real-time stuff, I think, is changing. Long-winded way of saying, I think that's what's starting to change the nature of that role because as they enable more of that data, they're all you know, very smart people. They're starting to see patterns in the data and it's getting them to understand user behavior in the case of a company like Thomas or advertising effectiveness or new market opportunities. It was our chief uh, technology officer that very first raised the idea to me that we should develop a business unit called Thomas Industrial Data to sell data sets into the buy side financial institutions. And when he first brought this up to me, I'm like, yeah, all right, yeah, call, call me in a month. Well, you know what, he was right, because he was able to see that, frankly, much quicker than anybody else in the company. Tony, yeah, the, the speed at which this stuff happening, and it's everybody raising the expectations too of it, right? And so, you know, we, there's, there's uh, tangents here that go off into culture. What happens here, the talent issues, who are going to be the industrial companies and how do they do it in a way that goes out and really lights a fire into some young talent, people coming out of college or from other yeah. industries, people of any age that say, I want to be in a place where I can really make a difference like this instead of going in and a little bit to the, you know, some of the traditional models of saying, here's your process job, go and follow these steps clock out and somebody will come by occasionally and compare what you did last month to what somebody else did two months ago. It's, it's, it's happening so fast, so quickly. And Tony, one thing I, I wanted to mention here is uh, a few days ago, we had an episode with our mutual friend, Chris Lockhead, and he was making the point that he, he said in the mid late nineties, John Doerr of Kleiner Perkins said, you know what? The internet is underhyped. He said, for all the talk about it, it's underhyped. Um, We're not anticipating where it's headed. Chris said, I think the same, same thing is happening with cloud today in its ability, whether it's in industrial markets or financial services or healthcare anywhere, to accelerate and give small companies, entrepreneurs, the chance to do things they never did before. So I, I just think this boom that is about to happen here is you unleash that brain power, the innovation, harnessing data in the ways you've just described to have somebody like you who I think is pretty familiar with the power of data and all that but you first hear this from your seats here and you say yeah, yeah you know check back with me in a month yet there's a kernel of an idea and how do we open up our brains in ways that say not only going to be more open to this stuff we're going to put more of our energy there that's where our focus is going to be well and I'll be honest with you Bob if you look at the enabling technology of cloud to Chris's point 
I think we are wildly underthinking the impact that it will over time have. So there's a couple of things happening. Cheaper, faster, better is probably the first thing that hits you. And, and I think, frankly, had I not been in and around tech markets, it would have been harder for me to lean into this. But when I got to Thomas, they were already a, an Amazon Web Services customer. We've become a, a larger customer, not their largest by any stretch, but larger for us. And, you know, as we started to do that, just the nature of being able to have access to data lakes, data streams, and advanced technology for analyzing this data at cost-effective rates and with speed was, was literally, to me, dazzling, Bob. And I, I was, you know, I know enough to be dangerous about the technology, but as, as I continue to explore this with our CTO, I could just see, hey, this is a game changer for us. And it democratizes. It, it lowers the bar of entry, and it, that doesn't mean anybody can go out and do this. It, it still costs money. I'm not trying to say that. The other thing, and, and it was kind of implicit in your, uh, your observation too, Bob, the other thing that I've noted is that the real-time data and the ability to look at the patterns in the data, and I'll use the expression democratizing the data, people from all different types of backgrounds can now come into the discussion. Whereas before, you know, you almost had to be one of these people that, you know, uniquely could read Latin. And if you could read Latin, you could, you could hang in the conversation. If you couldn't read Latin, oh, I'm so sorry, you can't come into the room. I, you know, this is very complicated. All kidding aside, what's happening now is, you know, the expression I use is the liberal arts majors are in the room now. And, and we can see the same stuff and act on it. And I think that's a huge boon to all types of industries. Certainly it is to a business information company like ours. I can start to see this, Bob, over time in the manufacturing industry though, because as those companies need to learn how to um, communicate with customers differently, to manage digital sales and marketing, to manage their supply chain, to do new areas of innovation, not all of that's gonna come from an engineer who grew up in the, in the manufacturing industry. So I, I think the, the nature of what you and I are talking about is opening the door not only in, in a way of democratizing this and, and lowering the barrier of entry for some types of companies, it's now creating a more um, open framework. That's probably wrong in context here because it sounds like I'm making a statement about the technology itself, but it, it's, it's providing more accessibility um, to the data and, 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 and it's not putting a premium on the understanding of the tools themselves. It's putting a premium on, do you see the picture inside the data and can you make something of it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Tony, I, I want to say, I hope I didn't, uh, my reaction when you mentioned reading Latin, I, I hope my reaction wasn't too sharp. I, uh, I, I flashed back to a number of decades ago when I was being, uh, very aggressively encouraged to learn how to read Latin, sometimes with a metal uh, yes. ruler and some other uh, uh, advanced learning techniques. But you have uh, shared with me your educational past, and as that was coming out of my mouth, I thought, oh, I may be conjuring up some some imagery here for Bob. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, uh, I think the you know the the human's brain's ability to remember certain things, to forget other things, and to change <laughs> a lot of stuff, and it's really helpful. But Tony, tell me. Uh, as we, as we wrap things up here now, ultimately, you know, you talked about within the industry and the role of the CTO, some extraordinary stuff, but one of your other big points about customer success, and you've touched on that, where would you be advising companies in or out of the industrial sectors 
what's the next nut they've got to crack in this whole area yeah. of really modern, forward-looking, data-driven customer success? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a great question, Bob, and I want to be clear, we're feeling our way here too. And, and so I think it's easy to be on uh, you know, a, a fantastic show like this and I'm throwing rocks. Let me be very clear, I live in a glass house too. And I think many of us are trying to understand what does customer success really mean? If you're in the wrong hands, you get too far over your skis and you're wildly over-promising on something, it's vague and you don't know what it is. I think you go to the other end of the spectrum and we've seen some evidence of this in other parts of the marketplace where all it really is is a license to bash you about the head and face and try to upsell you after you've bought the core product and service. And, and, and boy, we, we've made those mistakes too. So I, I wanna be really clear, I'm not, I'm not throwing rocks here. I think as we start going forward, I think what's happening is I go back to what you just said is, what does the data really show? And are there insights in the data that would be um, helpful for my customer? So I'll give you an example of what we are really trying to do as a company. We have a customer success team that primarily a little bit pre, but mostly post sale works with customers. And if I'm really honest, it was developed many years ago when we had some technical debt in some of our internal systems. So it wasn't really very easy for customers to kind of go into the system themselves and understand, you know, how either things were performing or changes they could make. We're moving along very quickly and all of that technical debt has now been wrung out, thankfully. And so the capabilities and functionality, and we're just about to do another uplift with ThomasNet 5.0, will enable that experience better. So I think some of this is, in fairness, many of us put these resources in place when it was a cover-up for an ineffective user interface for the customer. I don't mean the product you couldn't use. I mean to understand what was going on with the product maybe wasn't up to snuff. I think at the same time, I know what we're doing here is then enabling those customer success people with data about the customer so that they can really be helpful. And not in that creepy way like, hey, Bob, I see you're happening to look at section 235 of the uh, website, can I help you? But in a way that's an understanding of your business an understanding of your objectives of, of the business and your ambitions of the business so that when we engage with customers around the data that we're seeing, it's in context of what they're trying to get accomplished. And I think for a company like ours, if not many, Bob, that's a horizon goal. You know, I, I, I hope we're always aspiring to do better, but we can already see a positive impact from sharing all of that data with this customer success team and saying, hey, your job, you know, it, it's great if a customer wants to buy more. We've got people that do that. Your job is to really make sure the customer is seeing absolute value and any support you need to help them with value of it. And oftentimes those conversations do lead to, hey, I'm looking to grow in a new market or we're launching a new product or whatever. So I, I don't mean to suggest you never get into the discussion of is there another product or service, but I think if the primary mission of the customer success team is to upsell a customer, don't call them customer success. I don't think that's, I, I think that's, you know, it's false advertising, right? You can call them sales support, you can call them sales, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I think it's fine to have salespeople that are, you know, seeing what else customers need. But I know here we're really trying to, to get our footing around what is it that, um, that provides success for the customer. It could be optimization of their program. It could be data that helps them explore new market potential. All those types of things we put under this rubric of customer success. My fear, and I don't know if it's appropriate fear, Bob, 
is that this has become one of those terms that has been has been damaged you know a little like ease of use or you know terms we heard from years ago where people kind of roll their eyes when you say it and so i you're closer to the the SaaS software cloud-based customer success teams than, than I'll ever be. So you, you'd be a better judge of that. But I sometimes worry that as in, you know, broadly speaking here as an industry, we've, we've kind of abused this term perhaps, but I don't know that. No, Tony, I think you're right. And it, it, even in the cases where the abuse has been more passive, I think it has been, mm. this is a customer success program we started in 2012 and to somehow believe that either the metrics or the mindset yeah. from forget seven years ago, eight years ago, how about two or three years ago? Yeah. And I think an interesting, one of the most interesting approaches I've seen recently is at Google cloud where a year ago, one of the first hires that Thomas Kurian made to his executive team was that guy from Microsoft who had been in their customer success team. He brought him over to Google cloud, but they renamed the, whole organization, this guy reports directly to Thomas, they split it, they called it customer experience. Within customer experience, there are two teams. One is customer success, the other is customer support, working very closely and in tandem. So even there, Tony, we see the whole customer success thing, at least what Google Cloud's trying to say, is it time for the next iteration? Let's talk about the whole experience here yeah. of which Success yeah. is a part, supports a part, and a number of the other things. So uh, I think it really speaks to your notion of don't put the shingle up and then, you know, fill it with people who maybe don't have that as their number one priority and goal. Uh, yeah. It, well, it, nothing good's going to happen then. And if, and if you think about it, Bob, I don't know when the first true recurring revenue, let's call it SaaS or cloud services, really came online. It's more mainstream today, you know, obviously everywhere in our lives. But I'm wondering in listening to you, A, I'm, I'm going to investigate their approach because I think that's very, very smart. Um, I'm wondering if part of what happened is we were used to running these businesses at, we got to load the guns on the annual renewal. And by God, I'm getting after you on that annual renewal and I'm hoping I can upsell you on the annual renewal. To when these became recurring revenue businesses, we had dated models in terms of you know, what we thought of as customer support, yeah. when it, it, we really, certainly you need some of that, but perhaps it needed to shift to something about, hey, if you're an ongoing customer and it's an opt-out, not opt-in, and it's recurring revenue, then I should really be focused on, how's it going? How's the customer experience? So that's a, actually a really an interesting way to think about it. And, and, uh, and, and I'm wondering if that from to shift was really driven by you know, these becoming recurring revenue businesses, you know, you argue all businesses are recurring revenue, but in the way that you and I might yeah. define it in a SaaS cloud-based world. Absolutely. It's, uh, now, Tony, there's, there's lots going on there. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I enjoy so much about our conversations here is you bring to life this notion. A lot of people say, well, you know, manufacturing, they try to dress it up with these fancy terms. It's still manufacturing. Well, yes, it is in some ways, but it's so much more than that. I think in the same way, you know, somebody saying, well, retail still retail. It's like, mm, no, it isn't. Uh, yeah. Would you talk about the one time, Tony, the 3D printing of an artificial arm? I, I think now it's, it's, it's not science fiction. This has happened. People are using them. So yeah. uh, I think we need to ensure this uh, sense of awe and wonder remains in, in some of these fields. And as long as that happens, then the technology can be put in its appropriate perspective, which is to do great things for customers, not to uh, to sit there and you know be a little trophy 
IT thing all by itself. Hey, Bob, can I give you one as we close down Please. here? Can I give you one more of these kind of uh, like wonder and amazement accomplishments? So the, the, the nature of what they call prefabricated materials to, to stand up buildings has been evolving very rapidly. And there's a lot of really remarkable technology and science in these. This, this horrible coronavirus that, that, that we're hearing about, um, they stood up a close to 40,000 square foot hospital in 10 days in outside of Wuhan um, to assist with patients that were dealing with this horrible you know, challenge over there. You start to think about in 10 days, they built a hospital with prefabricated materials and you know, it, it, that, that awe and wonderment of that. And you start now to think about the implications of this for emerging economies or third world countries and what, what doctors without borders have been wrestling with where they go in and they just don't have sanitary conditions to be able to work out of. The idea that we could do something that rapidly and have an impact, but that's the magic of some of the, you know, this newer and more modern uh, manufacturing technology coming online, so. No, Tony, it's a great thought. Thank you for sharing that there. And uh, thanks again, just for another great discussion about things you keep, uh, you know, ensuring, you know, we keep our heads up, see the big picture and what's going on. Hey, Bob, always great to be with you. Thanks so much. Tony, thank you. Thanks to all of you for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live for another episode with Tony Uphoff and Uphoff on Industry. We hope we'll see you next time on Cloud Wars Live.